0: We're joined by Annabelle Lee from Malaysia Kini today who will give us her professional opinion on some of our latest local news pieces. This
1: next article is about the Chini by-election. So the Pekan Party Pre-Bumi Bersatu Malaysia Division will be mobilized to support their candidate. Uh, and this by-election will be the first for Bersatu under the Perikatan National Government. So why is this seat under so much scrutiny considering it's Perikatan Nationals versus two other independent challengers? with no Pakatan connection?
2: Actually, I, I wouldn't say it's under much scrutiny at all. I think, in fact, I think everyone's attention is drawn elsewhere. Uh, you know, partly due to COVID, but you know, a lot of other reasons as well. But, um, but also because I think in this, in the Chini by-election, you have a Barisan National, can- a Barisan national candidate under Pakatan National against two independents. And the thing with the seat is a Barisan National stronghold. I think ever since the seat was... Created in the nineties, it's always be a BN stronghold. They're very, very strong, very popular in this in this seat. And I guess many people just assume. I would assume that they're gonna win, you mm. know, um, because even in GE fourteen, when we saw all many many other seats falling, um, Chini was great. I mean, BN. I think the former former the late assembly person. He won the seat by four point six thousand. Uh, uh, thousand six hundred. Uh, a majority uh, in a 20,000-plus seat uh, with 20,000-plus voters, mm-hmm. which is a very big majority given it was 3 qualified and I think you had PASS and Bersatu. Yeah. And now all those parties are on one side, right? So, you know, of course, you have that combined strength. How can you not win? So I think many people, uh, probably uh, pundits or even, I think, even for me, I would expect them to win quite handsomely, especially when you have everyone you know, working together, Bersatu and PAS both time. now they're all on the same side. Yeah. So, yeah, so I don't actually think there's much scrutiny per se um, because I think, I don't think the independents can 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 go against such a strong fund. So so this has I- been
0: a lot of talk and a lot of media coverage on it, I suppose, because it is the first one since the change of government, right?
1: Now, there's a promise of 10 new telecommunications towers by MCMC to improve the internet connectivity there in Chini. How is this promise important to the voters of this by-election?
2: Well, based on the report, I mean, it's to improve internet access, provide 4G, um, and I think there are a lot of Felda settlers there. So I assume the the, the internet in, in a rural area wouldn't be that great. So that, that I mean, that's the point, lah. I mean, they technically, technically, they should do that for the whole country, not just Chini. But I guess the timing of the announcement, of course, is interesting. We have a Chini by-election, and they're announcing ten towers for uh, Chini at the same time. So, of course, this raises questions about whether this is campaigning. Is this proper? Is this fair? I mean, in the past, you've seen Harapan do it as well. When they were in government, mm. they would go to Tanjong PI, or they would go to Kimanis and they would, you know, announce millions and millions. I mean, there's a worth of ringgit of, of, of projects and allocations. BN did it as well during GE14. Um, and I think, I guess the problem here is it creates an uneven playing field. I mean, when you have the opposition candidate or now in this case, an independent candidate, no party, you know, th- there's no way they can promise this sort of thing. They can no, There's no way they can promise government resources and, you know, 10 co- telecommunications towers. So, you know, based on what Bursay says about, uh, Bursay at the NGO says about, you know, elect, election campaigning using government resources, it is not illegal, uh, there's no law against it, it's not an election offence, but it's it's unfair. You know, when you talk about free and fair elections, this is pretty, not very fair, because what you're essentially doing is you are using government resources paid by taxpayers' money, like you and me, like the you know, and, and you're using it for a party purpose or using it for a political purpose, right? Because mm. you're trying to win an election here. So, you know, Maybe we can, you know, is that even proper? Is that fair? So, I, I think that is the issue. And, um, yeah, once again, not illegal, but highly unethical.
1: All right, let's get to our next article. Election Commission Chairman, Dato' Ad Harun has been tipped to become the new Dewan Rakyat Speaker. Now, in your opinion, Annabelle, what are your thoughts on this appointment based on historical evidence? Do you think Ad Harun is the right candidate? I don't have historical evidence, <laughs> but but I can tell you what I observed. You know, during
2: his time as EC Chief, so he's only been in the post for less than two years. I think he was appointed September twenty eighteen. So he really hasn't been there that long, but I but I remember. You know, I was covering one of, um, one of the talks, one of the forums. He was there, and he really positioned himself as someone who was really championing reforms, uh, electoral reforms, of course, with EC Chief, and. Um, he was telling the public to make noise and make the, at the time it was you know the Harapan government uncomfortable if you wanna see or you wanna expedite reforms. So he, he strikes, I guess he comes across as, as that kind of guy who really wants reforms, wants change, and that's always good, right? Especially if, if you also want those things. But in terms of um, how he performed as actually, as the EC chief, because that's all we have to go on you know with right now, um, I think he really used the many by-elections that we saw after GE14 as a way to slowly introduce or implement reforms. So some of these reforms included um, providing more polling stations for those who were elderly, those who had special needs. So that was really nice. I think he extended the voting times as well and and, and that gave people, I guess, more opportunity to vote. He introduced, uh, and he really welcomed election observers as well to make sure, you know, there's I mean, one of the issues I think the EC faced was a real PR crisis right after the GE14. They really wanted to, people to believe in them again, the public confidence was low, they wanted to improve that. And he really uh, tried to, to work on that, you know, he allowed election observers to come, he allowed video recording of all the voting streams. I mean, that's, that's real, really showing people that, you know, we have nothing to hide. And I think he tried to, um, you know, present the results as fast as possible, you know. He didn't want people to have to wait for the results. Mm. So I think, and, and also I think he tried really, really hard. I mean, people people were accusing him of being pro-Harapan. But I think he tried really hard to present himself as someone who was fair to all parties, especially when he tried to roll out the undi 18, um, you know, the initiatives, which, which are still not done yet, you know, that he's still in the, in the process of making yeah. automatic voter registration. He really... Um, as far as I know, he, you know, engaged with parties, you know, from from all all political parties, you know, government, opposition, anything. And uh, I think that was really important to try and restore public confidence. And, um, but it's a real shame, you know, I really think he hasn't finished what he set out to do. It's been less than two years. And then you want to move him to uh, the Dewan Rakyat, which is, there's so, so many issues there, of course. But I don't know. I mean, I feel like uh, people people really miss him at the election commission because he was really different. He was a breath of fresh air he was not from the civil service right mm-hmm. He was a quite a quite a high profile lawyer who had uh, who was very outspoken about election issues human rights issues so and, and and you know he had represented people on election petitions before so I think um yeah, I think, I think it would be nice to see him finish some of those reforms before he goes left. Yeah, because
0: right now they're saying like, trying to find an elections commission chairman to replace him, yes. they have exhausted all means already and it's, a, it's an uphill task.
2: Yeah, and then he was halfway through, I mean, I don't even know where, I mean, I don't, I don't know how long his term was for, but it's less than two years. I mean, you can't do everything in less than two years, you know, you change a system that has been around for so long, in less than two years, that's Now, uh, and about how
1: strategic is this move though to change the Parliament Speaker ahead of this 13 July Parliament sitting?
2: So it depends strategic for whom, of course. Yeah. Uh, but, but according to Deputy Speaker Ngakou he told us, uh, us meaning Malaysia Kini, that um, this has never happened before, you know, for sitting Prime Minister to request or apply, submit Um, a a, a speaker and a deputy speaker, uh, Tansri Muhammad Arif and also Waibinga, to to leave, right? Because technically you only change, or typically you only change speakers in three occasions, or three situations, which is um, they pass away, they resign, or you dissolve parliament and you call for elections. And none of those things, uh, I think are going (laughs) to happen. You know, uh, we don't foresee those three things happening. So, and you're supposed to give Members of Parliament fourteen days to nominate a new person, uh, you know. So you're not supposed to just replace and change them mm. on the spot, as far as I, I understand it, right? So that that is not really per convention. Um, but also, we know, you know, if you want to speculate about why and all that kind of stuff, uh, they were appointed by the previous administration, so that could be one of the issues. But the second issue is, I think. Uh, the Speaker has also accepted several motions of confidence or no confidence against the Prime Minister. And um, I think one of the former ministers, um, YB Liu, uh, Liu, Liu Rui Keong, um, who is a former, you know, law minister, he basically said that this is possibly unconstitutional because, uh, you know, you have a personal interest or vested interest in, in making sure they, they are replaced. Mm. You know, that, that was his view. So... You Could argue that you know, but but I guess it's not that un- unconstitutional because it was allowed. So, strategic or not strategic, I don't think it's illegal. I mean, because they allowed the motion to, to be tabled to be um submitted, and we'll see whether it's tabled. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, there seems to be, I mean, this parliament sitting will be very interesting, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, but earlier you did mention that you know, Art Harun is. Alright, this next one, um, very recent, Beijing imposed a wide-reaching nat- national security law on Hong Kong, uh, which many fear could be used to override existing legal processes and erode the city's civil and political freedom. So why did Beijing impose this new security policy?
2: Well, I think this comes after months and months. I think last year we saw Hong Kong, Hong Kong was just protest every day right? So this comes definitely after that. Mm. Um, you know, many people have said that this is a way for Beijing to really control what is going on and, and make sure that the protests don't happen again, or at least they can do something about it when it happens. But I mean, with any law, it depends how it's being used. I think it was passed on July 1st or a day before that. And immediately the next day, we already saw protests. Mm -hmm. And I think 10 people, according to the South China Morning Post, 10 people were arrested under this new law. So I think the law is interesting because it criminalizes secession, subversion of the central government, which is the Chinese government, Mm -hmm. um, terrorism, and collusion with foreign or external forces. And I think secession is what stands out to me because in a lot of the protests, I mean, they call independence protests, right? So they want to be independent of China, yeah. mm. which is a secession. So, um, you know, a lot of people were looking at, you know, maybe that is going to be used against that. Um, and some other features of the law, you know, you, I think they would need Hong Kong to set up a, an office to deal with national security cases. It would allow the chief executive, in this case, Carrie Lam, to appoint judges to hear these national security cases. This could be seen as judicial interference. I think Mm. judicial independence is one thing Hong Kong has always wanted to maintain. Um, And and it looks like this law could erode that. Um, And also, I thought it was interesting because Beijing now has the power to not just create this law, pass it, but also have the power to interpret this law however it likes. So oh. I can imagine that there could be some opposition to this, and already there has been opposition to this. You see, I think the UK and the US they're already already tabling motions to discuss whether this is, um, you know, democratic or not, mm. or whether it's fair or not. Yeah.
1: Well, to the pro democracy camp in Hong Kong, they think that this is like the death of the one-country, two-system um, promise that China gave to them when when, Brit- uh, when the UK handed Hong Kong over. But now it seems like Hong Kong is like one of the states of China if it's being controlled by China in that sense.
2: Well, the name is still Special Administrative Region, right? S-A-R. Um, and Kerry Lam, in you know, the Hong Kong chief exec, has promised that you know this will be not the case, that they will still be autonomous, that... that the uh, the law won't be abused, the crimes where they use it for will be clearly defined. But I mean, like all laws, like our Sedition Act as well, you know, it's really depending on how they use it. Mm. And we'll have to see, I guess, how they use this new law. And um, so far we've seen a lot of opposition to it, you know, the opposition parties in Hong Kong, the uh, pro-democracy legislators, the UN Human Rights Council has also issued some some warnings about it. So whether or not it, it really, truly, you know, erodes this one country, two systems, we'll see, I guess, in the coming months, you know. The fact that they rolled it out before July 1st, uh, which is... Uh, and July 1st, if I'm not mistaken, is the day when...
0: The UK um, gave it back to... UK it. Yeah. Yeah, the opened,
1: handover happened.
2: handover happened, and every year you see protests on that day because they want to be independent, yeah. right? So...
0: But the collusion yeah. bit, though, I mean, like, it's been nothing but... If you actually see the protests, you'd see nothing but Union Jack flags and American flags there. So that's already right there. You see, like, the, the one of the the issues right there with the new security uh, law.
2: Could be, could be. But I, I I mean, just... I'm no expert in Hong Kong law or whatever's happening. I'm just an obs- observer. But I imagine the secession bit will be uh, quite obvious. Because mm. with the... I mean, we've seen the protests. They all want independence from China. Mm. So, um yeah, I, I, I have a feeling that might be more of a concern. I mean, the collusion, they would have to prove that. I imagine. Um, I've just had a glance of the law. I haven't studied it properly. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's quite wide-ranging, right? It covers everything.
0: Yeah, so but I don't know about the one country. Because I think they will have to maintain two systems. Because the Hong Kong dollar, you can't just uh, just get rid of that. Because it's such a powerful currency.
2: Actually, that's interesting. Because, um, okay, I can't remember. I, can't, I don't know what a site at this point. but. Hong Kong used to be very important for China as like a, a business, you know, the gem, the business. Yeah, the finance hub, right? Yeah. But over the years, I don't think that is the case anymore. You know, you have Shanghai, you have Beijing, you have Guangdong, you have all these different. And they're moving to Shenzhen now, yeah. Centers. Yeah, Shenzhen, right? And I don't think Hong Kong is that, you know, that not, not to say not important, but I don't think they contribute that much in the terms of GDP, or in terms of um, you know, how much they actually generate. I don't think it's that huge. It's Mm. perhaps a symbol more than actual dollars because China itself is doing pretty well. I mean, I don't think we need Hong Kong per se, Um, but this is more of control, right? Because protests, uh, we've seen, you know, Beijing is is not a fan of protests, of course, Mm. And, and, and they haven't been able to control what happened last year.